Warning! The following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. Hurry up! We're running late as it is! Hey, it's all good. We aren't that far from the theater, and we still have a bit of time. We'd be able to go a lot faster if all these people weren't blocking the sidewalk. Maybe they don't have billboards and advertisements where they come from. You're not helping if you're not hurrying. Hey, babe, listen. Relax. Hakuna Matata! You're not funny. Look, we're two blocks away. We're going to make it with plenty of time to get in and get to our seats. I was really hoping to get a drink and hang out in the lobby. I wanted to people watch and look down onto Times Square. We can still do that. Just at intermission. I guess that'll be okay, and it'll give us time to talk about Julie Tamor's work. Ooh, I just get chills hearing her name. Who? Julie Tamor? Oh, do it again. Julie Tamor. Ah. Julie Tamor. <laughs> Ju. Uh, Lee. Oh. Tay. Uh, more. Ah. Okay, enough fooling around. We're here. Let's hurry and get in. All right, all right. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today we are going to be discussing the hit Disney show, The Lion King. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello, everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Today we're going to hop into our time machine and pay a visit to the African savannah that was set up on the Great White Way in the late 90s. Of course, we are speaking of the Disney musical The Lion King. The hit musical was first an acclaimed animated feature film and was transformed and then transferred to the Broadway stage by an ingenious team of artists and creators. Let's go ahead and address this elite team. Heading up the music and lyrics were Sir Elton John and Tim Rice. The book would be authored by Roger Eilers and Irene Mechie. The team that was tasked with bringing the African wilderness to life on stage were the following. Sets by Richard Hudson. Lights by Donald Holder. Sound by Tony Miola. Projections by Jeff Puckett. Hair and makeup by Michael Ward. Choreography by Garth Fagan. The final puzzle piece that brought everything together helped start the journey and would wear several hats that would create the signature things that the show is known for today would be Julie Tamor. Tamor would be brought on to direct the show, but she would also design the costumes and help lead the mask and puppet design. Michael Curie would also assist in the puppetry development as well. Also, it is important to mention and credit the work of Levo M., who was the choral director. 
The musical is based on the 1994 film of the same title. It was in 1994 when Walt Disney Theatrical Productions came to life with the development and opening of Beauty and the Beast that the roots of The Lion King the musical would start to take hold. In what producer Thomas Schumacher thought was a joke, then-CEO of Disney Michael Eisner started pushing for a theatrical production of The Lion King. This would eventually lead him to Julie Taymor, who he thought had the creativity to see the project come to light. As the show was being developed and rehearsed, the theater that the show would call home was being restored, renovated, and brought back to life. Disney acquired a 99-year lease of the new Amsterdam Theater in 1993 and began a two-year restoration. Finally, The Lion King moved in two years after that and opened at the newly restored New Amsterdam Theater on November 13, 1997. On June 13, 2006, the show moved a few blocks uptown to the Minskoff Theater, where it is currently playing. As of March 2020, the show has played 9,299 performances and is set to resume performances September of 2021. With that many performances under its belt, the show is currently the third longest-running show in Broadway history. But back to its opening year. In 1998, The Lion King was nominated for 11 Tony Awards. That evening, it would bring back to Pride Rock 6. It would win for Best Musical, Best Direction of a Musical for Julie Taymor, Best Choreography, Garth Fagan, Best Costume Design, Julie Taymor, Best Lighting Design, Donald Holder, Best Scenic Design, Richard Hudson. What's most significant about the show's Tony wins lies within Julie Taymor's win in the Best Direction category. It was the first time a woman had won that award. So, now that we served up the appetizer... Let's move on to the main course. As the sun rises... Rafiki, the mandrill, calls the animals to Pride Rock. She greets the King Mufasa and the Queen Sarabi before they present their newborn cub to the animals of the kingdom. In his cave elsewhere, Mufasa's brother, Scar, is lamenting about his lost chance at becoming the king. At her baobab tree, Rafiki paints an image of the cub and asks the spirits to give her the new prince a name. His name is Simba. We see Simba grow to a lively young cub who is playing in the savanna. Mufasa shows Simba the Pride Lands, their kingdom, and he explains that everything exists in a delicate balance known as the circle of life. He warns the young cub to not go beyond the Pride Lands, pointing out a shadowy area in the distance. Zazu, a hornbill who acts as Mufasa's advisor, arrives and delivers his daily report on the state of affairs in the king's domain. His song, The Morning Report, has been cut from the production as of late. Simba goes to see his uncle Scar. Scar piques the young cub's interest by mentioning an elephant graveyard in the area Simba is forbidden to go to. 
Meanwhile, the lionesses go hunting. Simba arrives to them and asks his best friend, a young female cub named Nala, to come with him to the elephant graveyard. The two lie to lionesses about where they are going and their mothers. Serafina, Nala's mother, and Sarabi allow the two cubs to go as long as they are escorted by Zazu. Simba and Nala formulate a plan to lose Zazu and are successful in the song, I Just Can't Wait to Be King. The cubs go off to explore the graveyard and begin to explore. Zazu catches up with them, but not before they are confronted by three hyenas, Shenzi, Banzai, and Ed. These hyenas intend to eat the trespassers and gloat about their soon-to-be meal. Mufasa arrives, rescues the cubs, and frightens off the hyenas. Mufasa is disappointed and angry with Simba's reckless behavior and disobedience. He takes this moment to explain to him the difference between bravery and bravado. Mufasa tells Simba about the great kings of the past and how they watch over everything from the stars. The king says that he will always be there for his son. After he sends his son back to Pride Rock, Mufasa discusses Simba's behavior with Zazu, who reminds Mufasa that he had the same tendency to get into trouble when he was Simba's age. Back at the elephant graveyard, Scar tells the hyenas of his plan to kill Mufasa and Simba so that he can become king. He raises an army of hyenas, promising that they will never go hungry again if they support him. Scar takes Simba to a gorge and tells him to wait there. On Scar's signal, the hyenas start a wildebeest stampede into the gorge below. Scar tells Mufasa that Simba is trapped in the gorge. Mufasa leaps into the stampeded and manages to save his son. But as he tries to escape himself, Scar throws him off the cliff, back into the stampede, killing him. After Simba finds his father dead, Scar convinces him that his father's death was his fault and tells him to run away. As the small cub runs, Scar orders the hyenas to kill him. Simba escapes the hyenas, but they tell Scar that he is dead. Scar tells the rest of the pride of the misfortune that has happened to Mufasa and Simba. Rafiki and the lionesses mourn the deaths, and Scar claims the throne. He allows the hyenas into the pride lands, and they take over. Rafiki refers returns to her tree and smears the drawing of Simba, symbolizing the end of his story. Out in the desert, Simba collapses from the heat and exhaustion. Vultures begin to circle, but are scared away by Timon, a meerkat, and Pumbaa, the warthog. Simba feels responsible for Mufasa's death, but the duo take the cub to their jungle home and show him their carefree way of life and their bug diet. (laughs) Simba then grows to adulthood. The chorus, dressed in colorful clothes with ornate bird puppets and kites, begin the second act. As the song ends, however, the beautiful birds are replaced by vultures and skeletons. Under Scar's rule, the circle of life is out of balance and a drought has hit the Pride Lands. Zazu, now a prisoner of Scar, listens to the king's woes. The hyenas are complaining about the lack of food, but Scar is only concerned with himself and why he is not loved by everyone. He is hunted, haunted by visions of Mufasa and rapidly switches between delusional confidence and paranoid despair. Nala arrives to comfort Scar about 
I'm sorry, to confront Scar about the famine. And Scar decides that she will be his queen and give him cubs. Nala fiercely rebukes him and resolves to leave the Pride Lands to find help. Rafiki and the Nala and the lionesses bless her for her journey. Back in the jungle, Timon and Pumbaa want to sleep, but the restless Simba is unable to settle. Annoyed, Simba leaves them, but Timon and Pumbaa lose their courage and follow him. Simba leaps across a fast-moving river and challenges Timon to do the same. Timon falls in and is swept downstream. He grabs a branch over a waterfall and calls for Simba's help, but Simba is paralyzed by a flashback of Mufasa's death. Timon falls from the branch and Simba snaps out of his flashback, rescuing his friend. Simba is ashamed that Timon nearly died because of his recklessness. The three friends stop to sleep and discuss the stars. Simba recalls his father's words, but the friends laugh at the notion of dead kings watching them. Simba leaves expressing his loneliness and bitterly calling Mufasa's promise to be there for him. Rafiki hears his song on the wind, joyfully realizing that Simba is alive. To symbolize his return, she draws a mane on her painting of Simba. In the jungle, Pumbaa is hunted and chased by a lioness. Simba confronts her and saves his friend, but recognizes the lioness as Nala. She is amazed to find that Simba is alive, knowing he is the rightful king. Timon and Pumbaa are confused, but Simba asks them to leave him and Nala alone. Timon realizes what is happening and laments the end of Simba's Akuna Matata lifestyle. Nala tells Simba about the devastated Pride Lands, but Simba still feels responsible for Mufasa's death and refuses to return home. On his own, Simba meets with Rafiki, who explains that his father lives on. Mufasa's spirit appears in the sky and tells Simba he is the one true king and must take his place in the circle of life. Very strange weather we're having! reflects Rafiki. Uh, Reawakened, Simba rings his courage uh, and heads for home. Meanwhile, Nala wakes Timon and Pumbaa to ask where Simba is, and Rafiki appears (laughs) to tell them all the news. The three of them catch up with him in the Pride Lands, where he witnesses the ruin of his home. Timon and Pumbaa distract some hyenas by doing the Charleston, allowing Simba and Nala to reach Pride Rock. Scar calls for Sarabi and demands to know why the lionesses are not hunting. Sarabi stands up to him about the lack of anything to hunt, angrily comparing him, uh, pre- comparing him to Mufasa, and Scar strikes his sister-in-law, saying he's ten times the king Mufasa was. Enraged, Simba reveals himself. Scar forces a confession of murder from Simba and corners him. Believing that he is one, Scar taunts Simba, by admitting that he killed Mufasa. Furious, Simba recovers and forces Scar to reveal the truth to the lionesses. Simba's friends fight the hyenas while Simba battles Scar on top of Pride Rock. Scar begs for his life, blaming the hyenas for everything. Simba tells him to leave out of mercy, but Scar attacks again. Simba blocks the attack and Scar falls off the cliff. The hyenas... Who heard, Scar- who heard of Scar's betrayal, are now still starving, tear him to shreds. 
With the battle won, Simba's friends come forward and acknowledge Simba as the rightful king. Simba ascends Pride Rock and roars out across the land. The Pride Lands recover and the animals gather in celebration as Rafiki presents Simba and Nala's newborn cub, continuing the circle of life. This is the part now where we'll discuss the plot and the story points. And how we feel about it and all that jazz. You know, the part that you guys have come to know and love. Absolutely. So let's talk about the plot and the summary. It's simple, but it's an important story about believing in yourself and trusting yourself and your friends. I love how the story is, um, it kind of touches on about how family isn't just blood, but the family you choose. Which I think is incredibly important now more than ever. Mm-hmm. Um, also, and this is something that I love. When a white audience goes to see the show, they see the color and the beauty and the pageantry and all that, you know, yay, Africa. But when a black or a minority audience goes to see the show, they get something I feel like completely differently because, you know, there's there's a king on stage and, it's, it, and he's black, you know, and it's the show came out 1998. Well, and this is when and, we were having the revival of, you know, embracing... Um, well, I was going to say, this is pre-President Obama. Yes. And I think before this, I don't think a lot of African-American kids had someone at that level to look up to. And all of a sudden we're saying, yeah, you, no, a, an African-American or any minority can be anything. And then, you know, of course, President Obama came along. Yeah, listen, you could be anything. And now we have Vice President Kamala Harris... And I really think this is kind of a show that embraces diversity and says it doesn't matter what your skin color is or what you've done. You could do anything. Mm -hmm. We're judging you on your merits. And I think that the audience members of different colors or backgrounds are going to get something completely different. And I think you're going to be hard-pressed to find a show that can do that without that being the actual subject. Right. And especially, I mean, with the show being performed in America, I... And it being such a classic story that so many people know, I really think that that... I like where you're going with um, this because go where you're going. Well, but I, th- <laughs> I, think, I think that it's great, you know, to, uh, you know, we don't even have to discuss race in order to make it, you know, a, a positive showcasing, you know. And so it doesn't make, you know, it's a mainstream enough show that it doesn't make how do I put this white people uncomfortable, which is unfortunate, but it like, you don't have to be worried about white fragility. It's hitting all the, it's sending the right message that look, here comes, here comes Andrew's political pundit moment. Okay. And this isn't like speaking for or against critical race theory or anything like that, but here, here's how race should be taught. Does it matter what color you are? No. But that's the point, is the color of your skin doesn't make you better or worse than anyone else. And we should be teaching our kids that. Is that we're all equal, despite what color of skin we are. That doesn't make you any better or worse than anyone else. You know, it, very much like what Dr. Martin Luther King said, we should be valued by the content of our character, not the color of our skin. That's what we should be teaching. 
and to hell with your fragility or what else you think. But whatever skin color you are, it really doesn't make a difference of what kind of a person you are. There are good white people. There's bad white people. There's good black people. There's bad black people. I mean, there's good and bad people of all cultures, creeds, religions, And it's not their race that makes them bad. And none of those factors make them good or bad. It's their actions. It's their character that makes them good or bad. You never go and say, wow, a white person's bad because they're white. No. And, and the same goes for any other race. And this show which is definitely directed as a family show or a kid's show, definitely is giving that lesson in a way without giving that lesson. So mm-hmm. I feel like kids are, it's almost like the, it's the um, osmosis effect. They're absorbing that message like a sponge without realizing they're absorbing that message, which is great. But I want to go back to what you said about a classic tale. Expand on that. Well, so a lot of people have said that this show is Hamlet in lion form. What? <laughs> right? And Uncle, like, killing the dad? Get out of here. Right? <laughs> well, so I can see a lot of the plot points, how they're very similar. Um, but I have done a lot of research on this topic, and it's just not the case. Um, one of my favorite things is there's an article written by Ryan Britt um, on fatherly.com that compares the story of The Lion King and Hamlet. And one of the points he argues is that if you compare Lion King to the ha- to Hamlet, you have a very deep misunderstanding of Hamilton. Oh, mm-hmm. Hamlet. Hamlet. Wow. I would oh, also gosh. say you have a misunderstanding of Hamilton <laughs> if you're but, comparing the Lion King and Hamilton. Definitely. Right. But yeah, so you have a misunderstanding <laughs> of Hamlet if you simplify it down to um, what the Lion King is made up. Um, and so... Um, well, if I can just jump in with one thing real fast regarding that is the only tie right now that i can associate with that is you have scar who's supposed to be claudius claudio claudius anyway the uncle who essentially murders the king father mufasa Mm -hmm. to regain the throne and that's kind of where it stops because he doesn't marry sarabi no he doesn't uh ophelia there's no ophelia there's no crazy yeah nala is not ophelia you don't have um mufasa coming back to um Simba and saying, avenge my death. Yeah, there's... I mean, when when Mufasa speaks to Simba, it's not a matter of avenging my death. It's, it's a matter carry of... carry on rem- my legacy. It's, yeah, it's remember who you are and be true to yourself. He never says, hey, go kill Scar. Take the throne back. Right, he, well, and the main thing that I see is not everyone's dead at the end of the show. Exactly. And yeah. that you can't just overlook that because that is such an important part of what makes Hamlet Hamlet. Yes. Um, but just as a little twist of fate, uh, fate because, you know, the world is funny that way, um, they came out with an animated Lion King one and a half, yep. um, which they actually set up the show, the movie, based on Tom Stoppard's play Rosencrantz and Guildenstern Are Dead, which, um, you know, if you're a, a deep thespian like us, that's a really big absurdist piece because, you know, here you have Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and they're Hamlet's, you know, partners in crime, but then you start Act 2 and all it says is Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. That's it. Yep. We move on. Yeah. And so it's just kind of a, a a nice little nod to this theory. Um, and I feel it. like a lot of people try to associate Timon and Pumbaa as Rosencrantz and Guildenstern and I'm like, um... No, no. 
I know where you're wanting to go there because it seems like the obvious choice, but let me tell you why you're wrong and how you're wrong, and here's the list. Because, no, the, if anything, if anything, truly and honestly, who Timon and Pumbaa could represent is conscience. Yeah. Good and evil. Timon is, I hate to say it, but evil. The little devil on your shoulder. Good. And, right, because yeah. Timon's more, deny, you know, don't be responsible, go with the flow, blah, blah, blah. But Pumbaa's that, well, but... And at the end of the day, if you notice, once he discovers his conscience, who he is in that, they're with him. Yeah, and they're just like... And they work together to help him be who he needs to be. Exactly, which I think goes to making the point of you surround yourself with the friends that you that need, that you need to help support you in your life choices. Right. You know. Let's go on to design because we could talk about we the plot talk, all day. Yes. But, but we've got to talk all day about the design because if you haven't seen The Lion hmm. King... Um, spoiler alert, this isn't your typical, like, hey, everyone's in a dress and a cute little pin roll or pin curls. And no, 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 no. Um, so the first thing we're going to address, obviously, is the costume. So, <coughs> excuse me. Here is a story. Here is a show where you have to take two gigantic, like, overcome two gigantic feats. One you have to bring the world of the animal kingdom to life on stage. And two, you have to bring the animated world, because it was a feature, animated feature film, to the stage. Two things that have never been done before. How do you do it? Mm-hmm. You know? Well, because it wasn't just animated. They were animals. Animated animals. Right. You've got the animal kingdom and you've got these animated people. So you've got to bring all of this to the stage. And it's not just going to... You can't just do cats. Like the the right. costume well, work do... for cats isn't going to work. What do you do? How do you bring these larger to life images to to life, but right. make it work where the audience goes, "Oh, I believe you're a lion," or "I believe you're a giraffe." Right. Well, because you can't follow the same ploys that you did for Beauty and the Beast, making the people look like inanimate objects. It's not the same way. Inanimate objects are stiff, but animals have move, to move, and they have a different flow to them. So you bring in Julie Taymor, who's a master puppeteer and just an absolute genius. So you've got Julie Tamer working on the puppets, Michael Curry, who's doing mask and puppet design, and Michael Ward, who's your hair and makeup guy. And they collaborate together, and they put together these absolutely brilliant costumes and puppets. And what's brilliant about it is, if you look at the actor outside of their costume, they don't look right. And if you look at the costume without the actor, they don't look right. Mm-hmm. And you put the two together and you go, oh. Well, because traditionally with puppets, the whole idea is to hide the puppeteer. But instead, the puppeteer is part of the puppet. Well, one thing that I love hearing, and again, I, you're going to hear me as long as this podcast goes. You're going to hear me cite this source. And it's a brilliant source. And if you haven't watched it yet, shame. Broadway, the American musical, they interviewed Julie Tamar and they talk about this. And she basically was explaining to her design team and the director, well, she's the director, not her, the producers, that's what I meant, when she was presenting these ideas and they were like, well, is it detailed enough? Do they look enough like giraffes and elephants and rhinos and lions and cheetahs and birds? And she's saying, you have to give audience members a little bit more credit. They know they're coming to the theater. They know that they're... They're coming to a show. So they don't need everything, you know, thrown at them. They can come to the show and they can finish the sentences. 
So they can see that person that's in the giraffe costume and know that it doesn't look like a full-on giraffe, but they can tell, like, oh, that's I a mean, giraffe. I mean, even children can do that, and that's why this show is so accessible. But that's the theater, is you can come and put two and two together. You don't, it's you not a movie. You can suspend your disbelief. Yeah, when you, if you saw something like that in a movie, you might be like, oh, I'm underwhelmed, and that's not right. But when you see that on, on the stage, you go, that's brilliant. That's, And so they look, they look real, and it's... So impressive to see that. Well, and the other thing that I really love about the show is the way that the color palette has been set, not only in the costumes, but in the set and everything. Everyone's working in the same color palette and helps to tell the story. You know who's on what team kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got everyone who's kind of working on the good team. They're very warm. Lots of blues and greens and even the brown tones. And then you've got everyone who's kind well, of on the other side with Scar. You're dealing with a lot of reds and dark tones. I mean, I just would like to argue and say that as a colorist, blue is inherently a dark tone, not a warm tone or I'm a just, cool tone. I'm but just not think, a well, the only reason why tone. I say blue, and, I'm, and, and I think I'm going to win this one, I think of every scene that we see Simba, Nala, Mufasa, Zazu, and I think there's always almost a blue psych. Yes, and well, it's hold because on. there's a blue psych, and 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 the characters have a bit of blue in them, and there is a big element in the show that draws everyone together on what side of the fence they are, or dictates the events, and that is water. In fact, at the top of Act Two, we see that giant piece of fabric that represents water. Yes, but I think I would away. describe it rather than calling it a warm tone. I would call it a bright tone. The oh, okay, he- that's The fair. hue yeah. of the good guys yes, is yes, a yes. bright palette, whereas the hue of the bad guys is it's a dark darker palette. palette. No, no, I would. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely fair. I think the only time that they break that, um, and I think it's okay to suspend it, is um, can you feel the love tonight? But that one's everything like rose-colored goggles, like you're in love. and Exactly. I think we can suspend the color palette purely because we're setting a mood versus... Well, and that's its own separate scene for yeah. a reason. But we're going. So. We're talking about costumes. But yeah, the color palette, absolutely. Um, I, I think the detail on the costume... Oh, the, I just want to... Uh, before we leave costumes, I just want to mention one more thing. The costumes extend past the puppetry and the costumes on the actor... And I think including in the costumes something that in a lot of shows you don't include or you don't think of as much. And that's something that you were experiencing, which is? The hair and makeup. The hair and makeup. Because if you think of, it's not just the face that's painted. A lot of these actors, their makeup extends down into the chest. Simba's got this giant red paint on his chest and whatnot. The, 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 the makeup on Zazu, what I love is that like his whole face is painted. And don't get me started on Rafiki. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we all laugh at the red behind that they have that looks like a pot uh, holder, you know, the pot holder thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, I love how simple it is because I don't need that. What I'm more interested in is is her hair mm-hmm. and her makeup. And she comes out and she's the first thing you see. And I'm immediately like, okay, we're done. We don't need to say anything. Else. And it only gets better from there. Mm-hmm. that it's a level of artistry. Well, and it's all married together. Yeah. Like um, on the lions, they, you know, their hair extends into their costume. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely beautiful. And the moments that they do have to remove these giant headpieces and that there's no break. 
you don't see the a wig cap or something. It, no, it's like no. These this is the performers. Yeah, they all they all meld together. So now let's <laughs> let's move on from Epic One to the set um, by Richard Hudson, which is simple and beautiful, and uh, it's but it has so many different textures and patterns that just showcase and make you feel like you're in the savannah. Like the texture is the one thing. Like the texture of the sun rising is something that sits with me every day of my life. All of the design elements flow. They all connect. So the sun looks like an extension of these puppets in the way that it's like fabric or, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like it's, they look like almost blinds coming up. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of what some of these larger costumes Right, look but it like. also it also still adds into that mirage effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That you get you from can, the sun yeah, when you're and looking the heat. At it, it looks and, like it makes water. You, yeah. and it makes you feel hot. And The stage is painted to look like cheetah print. Mm-hmm. Which seems like it wouldn't work the entire show, but given when you mix the light and the rest of the set, it you don't notice it. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that they use grass. Shadow, well, we're gonna we're gonna blend I think lights here in this, but um, the shadow effect with Scar's lair mm-hmm. where he traps the mouse, but they've got this beautiful red and it's very angular, deep angles. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the other thing is the set is designed specifically depending on where we're at and who we're dealing with. When we have these the evil side, there's a lot more angles mm-hmm. and sharp points. But when we're with the good guys, if you will, Super more rounds. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that that's, I, I mean, that's well thought through and that's, that's, uh, what am I thinking of? Not cohesion, but everyone's working together. Synchrony. Or, oh, oh, I know what yeah. you're, oh, it's in the tip of my tongue. If you can remember what the word is and you're yeah. yelling it right now, please send us a Pride rock, which is cool. It doesn't just like float in from the wing and it's like yay pride rock it's actually the center thing and it rotates up so it it, i mean it's tall but it feels taller because it spins up as it comes up so you actually feel like it's taller than it is Uh it's like a it's it feels like a um spiral staircase yeah um but looks like a rock um and i think the last well there's two things that we should finish up with sets that we should address the first is the jungle scene Mm-hmm. Which, I, I okay, I I just I can't I can't get over this scene, the lushness of it, the beauty of it, and it's like nothing else in the show. You had mentioned before the grass when they come out with the grass on their heads and to the depict, skirts and to depict that they're running through the grasslands. Mm-hmm. This, I mean. Truly, it's like nothing else. The cast comes out and they are playing different plants of the jungle, but then from the above flows in these giant vines and that. And true, like I almost feel like the theater gets cooler because I'm just like, mm-hmm. I'm transported into the jungle. And it's for Can You Feel the Love Tonight? And it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. on a whole nother level. See, the one that gets me as far as the way that the puppets and the set and the lighting all melt together is when Mufasa's the face. The star. Yes, the stars and Mufasa's face appearing. Okay, so. Oh, it's beautiful. Now, for those of you who've kept up with us, as this is episode eight, if we go back to episode one and we talk about the the spot op who makes their money to the nth degree with that last spot on the mask at the end of the show, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, this isn't one person that makes their money. This is a cast that makes their money. 
So this, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm just pulling this out of the air, but I feel like this is the first show that really capitalized on projections because Mufasa speaking to Simba and the stars, it's a projection. And we've got these pieces of Mufasa flying around on stage so and then they like, all come together. Mm -hmm. But if you're off by anything... It's not going to look like Mufasa. Mm -hmm. Well, and what I love about it is it wiggles and ebbs and flows. So it looks like it's transitioning from when like Simba's looking in the water at his dad in the movie. And then it transforms into the sky, just like how it does in the movie. And that is just, that's so my cool. favorite scene in the whole movie to begin with. And talk so. about Disney magic because it, they're the only pieces that have stars on them as they assemble and disassemble. Which mm -hmm. I find so cool. Um... But, and then of course the lights come up and you see it's a big lion head in the back. Mm -hmm. And then it speaks to him. I think, and, and, and we've seen it so many times, but that part always still gets me. And I know what's coming, but still the minute the lights come up, I'm like, ah, how are you not amazed by this? Like, mm -hmm. it, it, and I, it's so simple, but it's still so effective. Well, and I also love, uh, since we're kind of transitioning into light, mm -hmm. the way that we get warm light versus blinding white light. You know, for when Simba is, uh, you know, basically out in the savanna, like dehydrated before Timon and Pumbaa right. kind of find him. Like, you know, you have your warm scenes because we know it's hot. We know it's the savanna. But then it transitions into that blinding white, like, oh, my gosh, I'm thirsty. Light. It makes you feel the heat. Mm -hmm. I, I'm sorry. I just have to do one more thing on the set that I, I just remembered that we have to address. And that is the stampede. Yes. The way that they do... This stampede, the visual effect is... They use so much of the space. Well, okay, so again, I hope all of you someday get to do a tour of a Broadway theater and a Broadway stage. Um, but for all of you out there who are listening, um, you know, there are many Broadway theaters. I, I want to say there's... Oh, I'm going to make a fool of myself if I try to make a guess. I'm going to say there's about 41 Broadway theaters. That's probably wrong. Anyway... All I know is there's a lot of Broadway theaters and they're not that big, the stages, because they're all packed together in this little part of, of New York between 41st Street and uh, 50, 54th Street, 54th, Studio yeah. 54, with the exception of the Belmont Theater. Um, anyway, so the stages themselves are not that wide, you know. A lot of people think they're much wider than they are. And it's like, no, they really aren't. So when you see the stampede scene, it's probably, you know, you've got your your front bit of the, the the stage, like a lip and a little bit. And then you've got like your second row, your second leg, and then your third leg. And that's it. But the way they have this backdrop and you see the wildebeest coming down on what looks to be like a reel. Mm -hmm. And then they this other and it's a wheel it's a spinning wheel with puppets on it comes up on the second on the third leg and then it comes up on the second leg and out from the stage pops these actors that are dressed as wildebeest with wildebeest puppets and then you feel like this and but the the way it transitions and it comes down you feel like it well, here it, look, it comes it, and it also feels like it looks like a movie screen because it's cut like you're able to see something of the stampede from the top proscenium of the stage all the way to the bottom yeah and that's really effective because obviously you can't have 500 actors on stage for the stampede you have to, but it's an iconic moment you have to create it somehow um so i sorry sorry to go back from lights to set but i had to mention that 
Um, but of course, after that, uh, and and the death scene, you know, I'll, I'll tie it back to lights. The death scene, seeing Mufasa fall and the lights flashing, uh, really makes the way he falls effective because he can't obviously yeet boom, to the ground. He has to; they have to lower him slowly. But having those lights flash, and then the lightning and the thunder, and then for anyone who's seen the movie, you know, you just die a little on the inside when he comes and runs on stage and he's yelling for his dad and your dad. And then you hear the sound effects where they make the echo just sound empty and hollow and you're crying. The kids aren't necessarily crying, but all the adults are just like, this isn't okay. Um, Yeah, it's just, it's such, the lighting effects are beautiful. The sets are beautiful. They really, they just work. Everything blends together. Yeah. Just, it melts together and creates a perfect synergy. (laughs) Yeah. Let's go on to the music. Um. I don't feel like Elton John does anything wrong. <laughs> like, am I wrong here, guys? You know, the music is just perfect top to bottom. It's memorable. It's great. Well, you you I, mentioned um, the morning report has been cut. I've actually gotten to see that, and I'm bummed that it got cut. It was such a good, clever, fun song. Mm-hmm. Also cut from the show now is there used to be a much longer uh, ballet during... Mm-hmm. Uh, Can You Feel the Love Tonight? It was an aerial ballet. There were two aerial ballet, ba- ballets, ba- ballerinas. Dancers. Dancers. Aerialists. Aerial. People flew from the air above and <laughs> danced. Purdy. Um, yeah, up in, the, up in the vines I was speaking of. And it was, I mean, it, it really was gorgeous. At, you know, me being all of 16, 17, 18, I was like, this is gorgeous. And, and so they've since cut that. Um, but like one thing I love about the music is a lot of the th- the musical underscoring that happened in the animated film, they turned into actual numbers in the musical. Yeah, and everything feels. Here's what I here's what I think about like live theater and Broadway, and I and I steal this term from my um, program head from college you can't do things kitchen table. And what that means is nobody wants to come to a show and watch two people at a kitchen table have a conversation like they would at home at a kitchen table. People come to the theater to see things that are larger than life. Everything, Every musical number, every musical thing in the show feels larger than life, which makes it feel appropriate. I mean, for goodness sake, it's almost a 2,000-seat theater. Mm-hmm. You've got, you can't just sit there and go, it's the circle of life. Like, no one's... The opening opening number of this is Rafiki getting out there and just screaming at the audience and reaching out to the audience. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I want. Give me more of that. Like, that's how it. And and so this music just lifts you and motivates you. And I mean, I'm already thinking of a few moments that I just get a little teary eyed. I mean, you know, obviously when when Mufasa says, remember me and that. But one of my favorite things is when he sings. um, uh, What's the song? The sun, the sun will rise. Simba's singing it after, um, after he talks to his dad, and he sings it. I know that the night will come. Oh, when they and it's the oh yeah, and And it's the traveling song that he does as he's returning home. Well, but he sings and he hits that thing. The sun will rise, and Rafiki comes out and she stops it because she hears it, and the orchestra keeps going and she runs over to the tree. And she throws her paint up there. And then, you know, she sees it. And she's like, 
he is alive! You know, she's all excited. And I'm getting all teary-eyed thinking about that. And I'm like, if you didn't have the music, it wouldn't be as effective, you know, because it's the first time in a while we've had this optimistic sounding music, you know. Mm -hmm. The music really helps drive everything. And another really, really cool thing about this is their use of instrumentation in the theater. What I mean by that is there's, uh, I never got to see it in New Amsterdam, so I can't speak of that. But in the Minskoff, there's two boxes at the theater, uh, like two opera boxes, and they're both filled with percussion. All just different like tons of different percussion and and particularly like the you think about your african percussion things um so you are literally the sound is not just there in the pit but elevated and all around you and it really creates a different sound and experience mm -hmm. and speaking of different sounds and experiences we have to acknowledge and i don't think many people know this and i i, I know that when we were putting stuff mm. together mm -hmm. and i mentioned lebo m and you went what do you mean lebo m and a co-director not many people realize that on top of the ensemble and everybody you're seeing on stage, there is a chorus. There's like a, a chor full choral and, and, thing. And um, I don't want to speak out of term, but I think they're the ones that come out at the top of Act 2. I think so too. They're the ones that come out with the birds and they're... Uh, well, I don't know if they're the ones that come out with the birds in the audience. I think they're the ones on stage. Uh, and I'm pretty sure they're... But yeah, there's an entire chorus for the show that help back up and kind of do underscoring. Well, and that's the one thing that's just about the show is not only are all the elements bigger and larger than life, but the size of the casting crew is huge. Yeah, but you, I think to do this story, to do this show, you have to be, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, okay, uh, let's move on. I think the last thing that we should talk about is... Um, the choreography. I agree. And the chore <laughs> the choreography is so good. And this, uh, separating choreography from movement, I think, is important. Because obviously you've got these these actors who are embodying animals and moving like animals. I think about the cheetah in the opening number and just mm -hmm. how they... Uh, how she moves. It's and, amazing. Mm -hmm. But then you've got, you do have actual choreography. And what I love is they... It kept to the roots of the story, if that makes sense. Look, it's in Africa. It's in, I don't know that this is a true African story, but when it's set in Africa, we're clearly having African themes. We and, and they didn't shy away from, that's the style of music and dance we're going to do. So when we have this kind of group choreography most of the time, it's resemblant of African dance, which mm -hmm. I really appreciate. Well, and knowing um, a little bit more about African dance, um, that makes the subtle movements when they happen mean even more. Like when we go back to like the grasses, the grass yes, dancing. Yes. Um, stems the grassland from, chant, yeah. Yes, it comes from, at least my understanding is it comes from like a, a uh, popular dance for the men. Yeah, um, yeah. In African culture. Well, so. Yeah, and we, we, when they, I mean, like I said, you've got the, the subtle movements during the opening of Act 2. Um I, I wish I had the song list in front of me. Uh, when the lionesses are hunting, the way that they... Oh, the way that they kill the gazelle. The beautiful... I mean, just the way these, these dancers move their body. Because obviously there's dance fighting, if you will. Um, but just the... Oh, it's beautiful. It's really a great, great show of strength and a great show of form. They do a wonderful job of it. 
Um, but yeah, the the choreography it really it's second to none in this show. Um, and like I said, the aerial ballet when it was in it was so beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. oh, I'm getting all teary eyed just thinking about it. It was it was wonderful. Obviously, there are some fun factoids and notable cast members surrounding the show. So let's start with the latter. Uh, just to name a couple of notable cast members. Uh, Christopher Jackson was in the ensemble. You know him from In the Heights and Hamilton. Brandon Victor Dixon was Simba. He's from Shuffle Along and Hamilton. Patrick Page was Scar. You know him from Town and even Spider-Man Turn mm-hmm. Up the Dark. Um, and in September of 2014, the show became the top earning uh, top earner in box office history for both stage and film, surpassing The Phantom of the Opera. The show could not have happened without the collaboration that took place in development. Uh, Julie Taymor has a particular style, and she wanted to stay true to that style. Um, in her journey uh, to stay true to who she is an artist as an artist and her artistic expression, she helped take an animated film about animals and turn it into a staged experience. Um, And if you want some deeper insight to her artistic approach, please read The Lion King Pride Rock on Broadway by Julia Taymor. So let's now talk about the impact the show has had on the theater and its history. Because I don't think we've talked about the show enough. (laughs) Right. Um, This, okay, Disney had a huge hit with Beauty and the Beast. There is no denying that. But this was the first blockbuster show for Disney. I mean, this blew the doors off. Oh, yeah, there was nothing like it. This solidified Disney's place on Broadway period the end bar none this is like yeah you're here for good um it was the first show at the newly renovated new amsterdam theater which i i want to say one thing about this because we also we've just gotten back from new york by the way anyone who says new york is dead is lying to you and in the heart of new york and broadway there's so much pent-up energy i can't wait for the fall but new the new amsterdam theater from the outside like it doesn't look like this jewel that it is you know you're just kind of outside it's all among these other like big name box stores or whatever and then you just have this little marquee and there's the new Amsterdam with the clock but when you walk in and and I also want to say when you get a ticket to see a show at the new Amsterdam theater your ticket is different than any other ticket on Broadway because it doesn't say Schubert or Nederland or Jujamson or whatever it says the new Amsterdam and it looks very old fashioned from like the 40s and um it uh, you walk in and it is a gorgeous, gorgeous theater that totally harkens back to the days of old. Well, because the New Amsterdam isn't that where uh, Ziegfeld Ziegfeld produces Follies, Follies. exactly. Yes. Yeah. But it is it's it is a crown jewel of Broadway, and they did a wonderful job renovating it. So I think that's a huge nod to to the show to Disney, and to kind of bringing Broadway back to life, and you know because. I, I wish I could have seen Broadway at its heyday in the 20s when there were so many theaters. I'm listening to a different podcast. I'll give a shout out to the Bowery Boys. Um, and when they were talking about how many theaters were open, and then, of course, when they talk about other things, about theaters that were torn down to make way for parking garages or office buildings, it, it, you know, 
the Biltmore, which used to be right by the Samuel Friedman, which is now a Biltmore garage. Mm-hmm. It breaks my heart to think that there used to be a theater there. You know, I wish there were more, but we have the New Amsterdam. We have the palace. We have the Winter Garden. We have some of these theaters still there. Mm-hmm. The puppetry. I mean, this level of puppetry is just... I mean, it is definitely classic Julie Taymor style. Um, and I think this is my favorite implant, uh, implementation... Implantation? Implementation? Implementation. Wow. <laughs> um, of her work. Yeah. In this setting. You you know it's her because you see it. It's, it's it's like any other, like, you know, Fosse. You know what Fosse looks like, you know. Uh, that's the only example I got for you right now. But, you know, you see her work and you're like, oh, that's Julie Taymor. Mm-hmm. And it's it's brilliant in that sense. Show me another show that does it like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and even since, what show has done puppetry on that level? Mm-hmm. I feel like... You can't mimic it to the same degree. You have to do one step above. And I don't think anyone's figured out how to take it to that next level Mm-mm. without it being almost like Cirque du Soleil level, which won't fit. So right. it, it elevated. And, and we are, we have theater degrees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's theater degrees. <laughs> and puppetry is a form of theater. Yes. And I think this, is, this brought puppetry into the mainstream of Broadway and, 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 put its place there it wasn't just well, it like kind of reminded public. us like hey this art form exists and it's still valid yeah and i mean you know it doesn't the theater doesn't have to just be straight plays and musicals and these are the only elements you can use it's like no puppetry can exist as well there can be cross collaborations mm-hmm. um and i also think the racial and cultural stories behind or stories being introduced to such young audiences is a huge thing mm-hmm. if we look at what shows previously have been um, guided towards kids or families. And I'm thinking of things like, you know, yes, Beauty and the Beast, but like Annie. Uh, I'm coming up with a loss here for like family-friendly shows. Maybe uh, Bye Bye Birdie. Uh, swinging and missing mm. on that one. But, you know, you, you're not addressing some of these bigger issues where this is, without being the elephant in the room, definitely addressing the elephant in the room. Well, and it... It tells a story that is simple enough that children can understand it, but complex enough that the adults get the message. Right. And I and I think that's such such an important thing. And I'm going to get into that later. But um, yeah. So let's talk about the societal impact. Well, like we talked about many different times was how this brought the idea of race to the stage because at this point you know we really were seeing a um i i forget the word i want to use but like this was when people uh of african descent or black people as most people people of color people of color well not necessarily just people of color but people who are black they you know this is the 90s where everyone was wearing their hair natural again and they were incorporating you know, African print into their American clothing. And, you know, this is when Kwanzaa was definitely being talked about a lot more. You're not looking for gentrification. No, that's not the word I want. Uh, But um, Association affiliation. No, but it was basically a reclaiming of African culture in American roots. Um, I'm actually thinking about a TikTok we just watched the other night of In Living Color, the Aretha mm -hmm. Franklin show, 
when mm-hmm. their roommate comes in. I showed you it was a cold open. It was improv. She comes in and she's dressed in like this. Aretha African- Franklin. Try again. Queen Latifah. Wow. <laughs> wow. But she, her roommate comes in dressed in African garb and her other three roommates start singing like African women. Uh-huh. It was all improv. Yeah. Where, where I feel like African-Americans started embracing their cultural roots. Exactly. And doing so on a public level yeah and that's what i think that this show reinforced that made it okay and listen up until this point how many you know shows have been predominantly i was just gonna say black on stage like this cast needs to be cast black they needs to be cast of color i can think of two shows that are predominantly african-american um smoky joe's cafe Mm -hmm. and shuffle along Mm mm-hmm and I'm not talking about the the one that recently came out with Audra McDonald and Billy Porter. And that I'm talking about the, the original. one that came out in the in the 20s and 30s. You mm-hmm. know, um, and two shows that are predominantly African American cast until The Lion King. Mm-hmm. I'm. We can do better. We have to do better. We have to do better. But we. we this is a nice rock where it says, "Listen, you have to be casting people who." Are of color yeah. to be in this show, and 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 this is not a show where I'll say colorblind casting can be applied. You know, um, being seen as a white actor, I'm never going to play Mufasa, and I'm okay with that. Totally <laughs> okay with that. That's not a role I'm going to play, and I will sleep easier at night because it's a role I shouldn't play either. It's not meant for me, mm-hmm. and that's that's okay. I also think that it reignited Broadway and brought brought people back in droves during the 90s. Now, look, we covered in Beauty and the Beast about how horrible Times Square and Broadway was in the 90s and that, like, Mayor Giuliani teamed up with a lot of private businesses such as Disney to help clean up the area, make it family-friendly and all that with Beauty and the Beast in 1994. Yeah, that started, that went through and all that. But Beauty and the Beast was kind of like the plow and the snow plow. And The Lion King was what was right behind it. Because with The Lion King getting put on Broadway, that was the anchor that I feel like the theater district needed. Because all of a sudden you saw a flood of other shows coming. And I encourage you to look at not only what shows were open that year, but have since opened. And have really brought theater goers to town. In fact, in a couple of episodes we're going to talk about a show that opened between these two that wasn't necessarily, I would say, by any stretch, a family-friendly show, but definitely brought droves of theater goers um, to Broadway, near where the New Amsterdam is. And if you figured it out, good for you. If not, stay tuned. But, you know, it revitalized the theater district. Mm -hmm. Suddenly people had a reason to go down there, and other industries, the restaurant or what have you, started coming back too because, you know, the th- I think you mentioned this in a, a previous episode. Suddenly, the theater became something that you didn't just go to, but it became a whole experience. Mm-hmm. You did every. You went to a nice meal. You went to the show. Like you, you did it all. The whole know. thing was an experience from the moment you left wherever you were staying to everywhere you went before the theater, everywhere you went after the theater, mm-hmm. and the theater itself. It's it's an experience. And- you know, they in the 70s and 80s, they were trying to sell... They had this promo called I Love New York where they were trying to sell people to come to New York and be a tourist. And, you know, Broadway was part of that. 
I'm seeing Angela Lansbury's Mrs. Love and I love New York, you know. In the 90s? You mean in the, the, no, in the late 70s and 80s is when they did this. It was an okay. I Love New York campaign. When the 70s when New York was going broke, the Tourist Commission decided to launch this campaign to get people to come to New York and spend their money. Well, I feel like with the advent of the 90s, especially with The Lion King, suddenly Broadway really became a tourist thing. People really were just coming to New York and what they were doing was coming to the theater. And not only were you just going to dinner, but you were flying from somewhere across the country or the world and you were staying in New York because you were going to see a show. And we see that even today. How many people, how many of you out there listening, save up your money and you're going to New York to see a Hamilton or a Hades Town, or a Wicked, or, you know. Yeah, well, and the other thing with this show, because the animated film, The Lion King, had been translated into so many different languages, people from other countries can come and see the show yes. and not have to see it in their native language. And the show does incorporate Swahili into the show. So you have Swahili being spoken and um, English being spoken. And so you don't have to understand any of those languages to understand the show. Its its message and theme is universal. Is the show still relevant? Absolutely. I mean, is there any... I don't think it's up for debate. Sorry. It spans the generational gap. It spans the social gap. It's, it... I mean, we're getting to a point where people who were children who saw the show when they were children are bringing their children to see the show. It continues to thrill and entertain audiences. The show is 23 years old mm-hmm. and it's packing it in. And the always the story hasn't changed, the music hasn't changed. I mean, they've cut some stuff, but that's Well, yeah, but you know, <laughs> it's it, it's the same story from the even the film end. And it it's still just as good as the first day it opened. And I think audiences return not just to hear the story that to they've see been the told. spectacle. Exactly. And it's been all over the world. And it's been on tour. And it's been to Vegas and all of that. Uh, in fact, I mean, I remember when we worked for the University of Utah. And we would go to Vegas for something. Our friends would be like, we're going to go to, the, you know, we have a free night. We're going to go see it. In, in Ve- we're going to go see it at the Mandalay Bay. We got tickets to go see the Lion King. Now, look, the Lion King in Vegas was a kind of a. Condensed. A, yeah. So I was like, yeah, I mean, I'm glad you're supporting the arts, but I'm like, you're not seeing the whole thing. But still, like, people want to see the spectacle that is The Lion King, the musical. Mm -hmm. It is known around the world. Finally, as promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. So, away we go. Um, we've seen the show, oh man, between the two of us, I think about 12 times. Um, I've seen it on Broadway. I've seen it here in Salt Lake. I've seen it in St. Louis. But the first time I saw the show was back in 2006. And the first time I saw it was in 2009. So, oh kick it off if you wouldn't mind so on one of the times we saw the lion king um back in the day when we would stage door because you never know who you're gonna meet that's an ensemble member today and a tony winning actor tomorrow uh well the actor who played pumbaa um was sending my playbill and we got into a conversation um and you know i had just 
we were talking about how I was in school for acting and this and that and being a larger guy. He just really offered some good words of encouragement and just some really awesome insights. He also exchanged emails with me. Um, he just kind of acted as a mentor and it was really refreshing to see a Broadway actor, you know, they're already given so much on stage, but continue to give right after, uh, at the stage door. It was really, really kind of a, a fun experience while everybody else is freaking out about the child actors that had come out. Here's the guy who played Pumbaa, who I thought was absolutely phenomenal. Um, hilarious. Just really taking the time to talk and visit with me. And it le left a lasting impression, um, on me. And, um, Speaking of lasting impressions. Well, so one time while we were, it actually was very, it's got to be somewhere around those same years. Um, we were hanging out by the stage door and someone comes out who didn't look like they were in the show, but you know, they were really nice and we kind of struck up a conversation with them. It turns out they were seeing their friend who was in the show and they had just saw him backstage and they were leaving and we're talking to this person because, you know, we're friendly people and she's friendly. Um, and it turns out it is Stephanie Kurtzuba. Who at the time was in Billy, Billy Elliot. Elliot. Um, and we just made nice with her. And we're like, oh my goodness, we're seeing Billy Elliot in two days. And she goes, oh, well, let me know when you're there. I would love to take you backstage, you know. But we just had this amazing conversation with her about, you know, her life as an actress on stage. And then her husband, who is a set designer... Um, and it's been really fun seeing her career grow and change. Um, she most recently has played the national ad campaign playing the Red Baroness for uh, Red Baron yep. Pizza. You might also have seen her in The Wolf of Wall Street as well as The Irishman. Mm -hmm. um, but she's an amazing human being, really nice, and it was just really nice to for her to take that time to speak with us and you know just to kind of give us a little insight about what is happening in the industry from her perspective yeah um another memory that i have um and this just like leaves a lasting impression on me is the first time i saw the show was on that high school trip that i keep referencing and we were in the orchestra uh of the show and i remember i was i got to be in the aisle and as the show started um, there's what's called the Parade of Animals. And it's when the um, actors who particularly even play the large animals, they come and parade down the aisles of the orchestra. And I'll never forget the house lights kind of coming up. And I look to the side and there's this giant elephant walking by me. And I was like, this is amazing. Uh, you know, and I wouldn't say that I'm a naive by any stretch of the imagination um, person, so I knew what it was, but at the same time, I was completely consumed and taken back by it. Um, and I'm hoping I can get this experience or pass this experience on to Hope uh, when we see the show again, because it's it's a once in a lifetime. Like it really is. If well, you get the chance to see it from the orchestra view, it's not the same experience when you're up in the balcony. You get to see it, you know, from above, mm -hmm. but getting to see it walk right by you, it's a completely different experience. Well, and also like. Even though Andrew and I don't have kids, um, you know, was, yeah, it's exactly seeing what I was about to say. like the children in the audience, like seeing how their face lights up and seeing yep. the wonder that's in their eyes is just amazing that that's my the stage can do. I, I've seen the show so many times. Actually, my favorite thing to do now when the show starts, as soon as the house lights come up, as I look and I see all these kids 
lean forward on their seats or they, you know, they're little ones, they stand up and they're starting to look and their eyes are all big and they're looking at it, they're seeing all this and they're amazed. And I'm just like, you got the bug, you got the bug, you got the bug. Like it's going to be in you. And I'm like, stay tuned kid. It gets better. Like Mm. this is, this is just the beginning, you know? So the last thing I want to mention about the show uh, regarding uh, what I've experienced is um, on that faithful high school trip, Back in 2006, I had the privilege of actually getting a workshop with several cast members from The Lion King. Um, They took us to this workshop space just a couple of blocks away from the theater, and they did a really fun, you know, experience with us. We, We did acting and dancing and whatnot with them, and it was cool because obviously working with them in the morning and then seeing that show that night and getting to find them in the cast or you know the show was really really great they were amazing offered us great feedback and just you know words of inspiration it was incredible as things begin to return to normal and the theater world starts to turn its lights back on we look forward to returning to see the show again you'll be able to catch the lion king eight times a week at the minskoff theater at 200 west 45th Street in New York City starting September 14th. (laughs) We just want to mention as well that as things are opening up, we encourage all of you to support the arts, whether it be local, regional, or of course, Broadway. Now more than ever, it is time for us to raise up and foster the performing arts wherever they may exist. Please join us in doing your part to help the arts return by supporting a live performance near you. We ourselves have already begun this work, and we will have a special announcement regarding this to follow soon. So, until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by John Bartman and Billy Murray.